Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Seed Sky. Just when I thought it was out of the heat, it just came back in and slapped us with another 30 degree weekend. It just does not seem that as far enough away that we can get from the summer, it continues to stick around. And even though we are entering into the annals of September, it still can't fucking tone itself down, regardless whether it gives us a little bit of rain every once in a while, or if it decides to go through and just stretch us out for another dry week in a row. But Besides that, the majority of the things leading up for September are kind of like a precursor to how everybody's excitement through October is just continuing to amplify as it keeps going more and more. There are going to be pieces inside of September that are going to at least give us the opportunity to just wind ourselves up and at least have an opportunity to have some things to ease us into the transition of the seasons, but at least for the rest of it, most of that's going to be settled down. At least for the rest of it, most of that's going to be settling down on Netflix for better or worse. And considering that they're already going to be thinking about putting their ad support subscription plan, which will be priced between seven and nine US dollars, uh, the only two words I can say is fuck that. I'm just going to let that go for the rest of it, and we are going to continue to share with the family, and there is no fucking way that after this entire decade that we are legitimately going to go back to a place where it's like, hey, we are going to have give you the opportunity to pay to have ads in the middle of the content that you're trying to watch. Fuck that. Although on the brighter side, Netflix is at least expanding on their library in terms of anime with their deals with uh, Nippon TV. So at least for that... Coming to stream either this September or at a later date, you're going to be getting the first 38 episodes of the Hunter x Hunter television series. Uh, at least that's the 2011 version, not the original version. You're also going to be getting all of Orin High School Host Club, as well as Claymore. And so those are going to be lining up and dropping on September 1st. And over the next two months, they're going to be rolling out Death Note, as well as the Death Note Relight OVAs uh, from me to use first and second season, which in this case is also known as Kimi Todoke, which is, it's a really good romance that does have its problems in the second half, but regardless if you're looking for like a really cute and quaint shoujo love story, then you can't necessarily go wrong with this. The 1997 Berserk television series, that is also going to have the opportunity to come to Netflix's library, and... I believe they still have the Golden Age trilogy films that were made by Polygon, was it? Uh, never mind, Studio 4C. That, that definitely makes a lot more sense. And now that's going to be the case where it's like, okay, you have two different Golden Age pieces to get you into the Berserk series that does not involve 2016 or 2017, but is there going to be a specific one that I would recommend one or the other? It's difficult considering that I do believe that the original 97 animated series is the better of the two, considering that it gives you the most fleshed out version of the entire story leading into the Golden Age and what Berserk was leading into, not only with the character of Guts, but as well as Griffith and Casca and the rest of the band of the Hawk. If there is something that I'm definitely going to have to recommend, considering that the first Berserk television series does not adapt anything after the eclipse. So I would definitely recommend if you really want to know what's uh, going to be happening after the petty drops towards the end of the series, then yes, that would be a good opportunity because at least the third Golden Age trilogy film that I still believe is on Netflix does give you the aftermath of what essentially the eclipse entails and its overall impact on the story. So I mean, watch both if you want, but if you want to start with something, go with the 97 version. Wow, I have not heard of this <laughs> series in ages. Parasite the Maxim. This was a series done by Madhouse back in 2014, 2013 or so, about a series of alienistic parasites that essentially go through and inhabit the bodies of other people. 
And because of that, they're able to not only kill their hosts inside, but they're also able to go forth and take over their bodies, making them essentially just like T2000, but uh, like fleshoid versions of that, considering how they can morph and bend and just create weapons out of their own bodies. It's, and it leads down to uh, one of the parasites not being able to fully take control of the body of a high schooler and how that essentially changes his life, not only the knowledge of these things and how exactly he's going to have to go through the, mon the normal mundanity of his life that's also going to get thrown into chaos as a result. I remember enjoying it, and it definitely seems like a series that would be worth binging, so if you ask me should I or should I not watch it, then I would say go for it, uh, give it a watch. Nana. Nana is a fantastic uh, heavy drama series focused on heavily on music and romance, considering that there are two women named Nana who essentially move to the big city, one who's trying to find job in romance, and the other one is trying to essentially find her life's path through music and reignite her fallen romance with her old crush. Not even crush, her old relationship. And if you're looking for a more modern romance that definitely strays away from the majority of the trends and uh, tropes of a lot of uh, standard romance anime, then this is definitely the one to go for, considering that I believe almost all of its main cast are like in their 20s and have they have the opportunity to see things from a different and more mature perspective. So I'll definitely give that a watch. All of the first season of Hajime no Ippo. That is also fantastic. If you have the opportunity and you haven't seen it, it's definitely a bit of a long watch. I think it's about 70 episodes or so, but if you're, I believe I said this on one of my previous episodes, it is currently like my favorite sports show. Of, well, actually, okay, sorry. It's my second favorite sports show. If you're talking about spectacle alone, then this is easily like the best action-oriented sports show in the entire medium. Uh, only second to the character drama Ping Pong the Animation, but regardless, definitely give that a watch. And then in terms of a thriller-slash-drama that's also in the 70-episode range, Monster is also going to have the opportunity to go through and have its opportunity to join Netflix's catalog. Also a fantastic drama series to essentially go through and enjoy that. Uh, Naoki Urasawa, I believe, was the one who was the original creator of the manga from which this is adapted from, and is definitely something that everybody should have the opportunity to go and experience because it is a fantastic thriller story and one of the best in the medium. Now, for another show that we finally ended up getting a release date on, considering that this is going to be popping up on Netflix on September 13th, is going to be the Cyberpunk Edge Runners adaptation. And so this is going to be, this is already done and adapted by Studio Trigger and based off of CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077 game. And who is this directed by again? Hiroyuki Amishi. Absolutely just anything that he is involved with whenever uh, whenever it was like his classic uh, Madhouse or Gainax or any other uh, project that he was able to go through and have the opportunity to put his own personal spin on this is definitely one that I'm really going to be curious about the trailer that I ended up watching was just balls to the wall just absolutely chaotic I was not expecting it to be this fucking crazy but considering Imaishi's track record definitely something that I should have expected long before so at the very least this show is not going to be boring and if you're looking for a fantastic hard action romp then regardless of your previous relations with the cyberpunk series as a whole i would definitely give this one a watch because it's going to this craziness is definitely going to be a way to ease us into the fall 2022 season and then, i mean on top of that um rick and morty is going to be getting its sixth season that's going to be starting on september 4th i believe and so that's going to be popping up around 10 or 11 episodes or so i mean how long was season five season five was yeah 10 episodes so the fact that 
on top of fucking everything else. I mean, a lot of people, especially like in the more recent uh, seasons, have had like mixed feelings on Rick and Morty. I still think of the majority of the time as it's entertaining and it's incredibly funny. So at least through that, it's a really good uh, piece of entertainment for me whenever it does come around every year. Every year? Hmm, hold on. Oh, uh, yeah, no, so season four, or season five was still 2021, and season, no, they've still been going a year-by-year -year basis per season, so at least that's been able to go through, and, but yeah, like, even Rick and Morty is going to be bleeding into uh, the fall uh, season shows, and so on top of everything else, like, this is going to be going up until, like, late October, early November, so on top of everything else, that's going to be crazy, and then another huge chunk of titles that's going to be making its way onto Crunchyroll's library. It's just ridiculous the amount of stuff. A lot of it's going to be film, and a lot of it is stuff that I am going to be incredibly interested in watching somewhere down the line. Because some I thought I was going to go see in theaters, but if it does make its way into theaters, maybe I'll just go watch it a second time. And that's definitely going to be Odd Taxi in the Woods, since apparently Crunchyroll is going to be streaming this movie um, coming out on September 8th. And then on top of that... Uh, Psycho Pass's Sinners of the System films that are sequels to the second season, I believe. Or at least, no, I, like one of them, uh, one or two of them are in between, is a prologue to season two. Another one, I believe, is just a, a prologue to one of the characters that went through. And then the third one is essentially one of the Enforcer's lives after he recently like what essentially ends up happening to him at the end of season one and why he is essentially not a part of any of the seasons uh that follows i would definitely say that if you're interested still interested in the psychopath universe which has definitely been becoming a lot more uh, tedious and difficult especially with uh, the quality and the different writers and people that have been jumping onto the products as of late I would say, if you still haven't seen these three films, which are mostly OVAs, I would say they're anywhere between 45 and 75 minutes. I would still give them a watch. Of the three, definitely uh, Tokoyami's one uh, leading into the third film is definitely probably the best of the bunch. But regardless, I still do believe that they are good enough on their own to go and experience and give yourself a little more information on this world. That essentially is going to be leading into not only the sequel to the third season, which I believe is getting a movie, but whatever projects come on after, considering that we're going to have to get more opportunities to figure out what happens in between seasons, because unfortunately, the writing has been a little slipshod as of late, and it doesn't really give you a lot of opportunities to get back into it. But, I don't know, time will tell. Definitely excited to see Odd Taxi come out on September 8th. Let's see, the two major things that are going to be popping up on September 1st is going to be uh, one of the Bang Dream films, uh, Pop and Dream, as well as Afro Samurai Resurrection. That is a real throwback to what uh, when that was lined up. Like, yeah, it aired on Spike TV back in 2009, and with Samuel L. Jackson and all of his samurai glory. Now to top it all off... Also leading in through, we've got September 15th giving us The Girl Who Left Her Time, Sword of the Stranger, and one of the Black Butler films, Book of the Attic. Uh, sorry, not Book of the Attic? No, Book of the Atlantic. And so all those are going to be popping up. Of the three, same deal, Sword of the Stranger is a fantastic action romp to watch through from start to finish. You get uh, the final action scene almost entirely keyframed by Yutaka Nakamura, or Yutapon, who is essentially responsible for like all the some of the best major cuts in bones's productions like from 2010 onwards so i definitely give that a watch mamoru hosoda is the girl who left her time which basically put him on the map i don't think since 
I've talked about this on an episode prior, that it is easily his best work, and he hasn't made anything as good as it since. So I would definitely give that a watch and a recommendation if anybody's interested to in going through and having the opportunity to see what Hosoda was able to start out with. Jujutsu Kaisen Zero is also going to be popping up on September 21st. Fantastic action film giving us basically the genesis of what Jujutsu Kaisen was going to be, especially with all of the mysteries that gets implied through the rest of this and how that's going to be changing through the series as a whole. I, I watched the movie and I've seen the, te- the anime series. I know that at some point season two is going to be coming out, which is why I haven't jumped into the manga just yet, but from what I've seen so far, it was just a fantastic film and just an incredibly engaging action set piece, lining out the majority of the film. And then September 22nd is going to be giving us basically every single three OVA and films, so Starting Days, Timeless Melody, Road to the World Dream, all those are going to be going through. Free is like one of the only... Kyoto Animation franchises that I haven't uh, ended up watching, and it's not really a priority, but at some point in time, along with uh, Air and Canon, I'm going to have to go through and watch those just so I can have the opportunity to get every single one of their series under my belt. And then finally, at the end of the month, on September 29th, all of the Code Geass Lelouch of the Rebellion films, as well as Resurrection, is going to be popping up on Crunchyroll's subscription service as well. So all of that has the opportunity to go through and give more than enough people a lot of opportunities to have those uh, films and OVAs and give people the opportunity to watch those to their related series. Because what is it? Like, they've already done good jobs with Sing a Bit of Harmony, Stranger by the Shore, Jose the Tiger and the Fish, Boy and the Beast, Wolf Children, Your Name. Like, having all those opportunities to go through to at least add to that catalog. It's definitely nice to see that more and more of it has been included onto their service to give people more and more avenues to watch all these fantastic films. And they even say that they're going to be adding even more titles leading into October. Now, the main thing that I wanted to talk about this week, considering that I just recently finished emulating the sixth game in its series, is a game series that's very near and dear to my heart. If you had to tell, ask me what essentially was my favorite gaming franchise of all time, it would pretty, it would be pretty close, but I would have to give it to Fire Emblem. Through all its ups and downs, through its highs and its lows, as well as its successes and its failures and its notoriety, as well as the times when barely anybody could figure out what the game even was, especially with its tie-ins and especially with the amount of times that you've seen all of its characters in every respective Smash Bros. game, it's been a part of me since 2003, I believe. It's the first game I ended up playing was the seventh in the series, which was the first game that was uh, given an international release, which I believe when my uncle ended up uh, gifting me his old Game Boy Advance, he gave me just a handful of cartridges and opportunities to get me going, and one of those games was uh, just titled Fire Emblem in its release, but the official title would be Fire Emblem 7 The Blazing Blade. And so it's a really interesting and long-running series with a history dating all the way back to the Famicom or the NES. Basically going from 1990 to its most recent spin-off game, uh, Warriors Three Hopes in 2022. Honestly, the fact that it's been able to go through and despite uh, a couple of various circumstances and continue to at least sell and thankfully be like on one of the top uh, sellers inside of Nintendo's repertoire for over 30 years, I can definitely appreciate the fact that it's been coming back into the limelight and it's gotten a second win to at least find a new fan base inside of 
North America and worldwide in general, considering that I really do enjoy its story, I do like its uh, relatively simple but complicated gameplay, as well as the characters that you're able to go through and root for and engage with and just kind of see what happens to them in this uh, magical world that they inhabit. So just as a summary of my engagement with the series, uh, the only games that I haven't played, even I've played the remakes of 1 and 2, and but I haven't played the original uh, games from 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, so I'll, I'll give you the names and basically give you the timeline later, but basically, um, Mystery the Emblem, Genealogy, Thracia, um, I still haven't had the opportunity to go and emulate and play those games. Whether or not they're going to be getting a remake, who knows? I'll try. I'll definitely figure that out to see what the next mainline title is over the next year. Um, in terms of the spin-offs, haven't played any of Tokyo Mirage Sessions. I haven't played any of the uh, Dynasty Warriors spin-offs. So basically, just Fire Emblem Warriors or uh, Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes. I haven't done any of those games, and the one mainline title that was most recent that I still wasn't able to finish was Fire Emblem Fates uh, to various degrees, which I will definitely get to with the rest of it. But the other plethora of games and like the other 90% of the titles inside of the franchise, at least through those, I feel like I have a good enough grasp and understanding on the franchise as a whole to at least give an informed opinion to kind of like go through and just talk about why this is one of my favorite uh, franchises inside of gaming. So... If we decide to go with the mainline titles that don't count uh, with remakes or spin-offs, there are basically 13 mainline titles uh, leading into Fire Emblem dating from 1990 to 2019. So on average, you're making a game about every two and a half years, except for like in the early 2000s when Intelligent Systems, who are the game developers behind this, basically just went on a fucking tear and just like... For the uh, for the next generation Nintendo consoles and handhelds as well, it was kind of crazy. But to give you the short version of the timeline of these games, so the first one, Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon the Blade of Light, was released on the Famicom or NES back in 1990, leading into 92, which is Fire Emblem Gaiden, which ended up coming out on the Famicom as well, leading into uh, basically Mystery of the Emblem, which is a weird remaster slash sequel, considering that the first half of Mystery of the Emblem, which ended up coming out on the Super Famicom, or the SNES, Mystery of the Emblem, basically, the first half of it was like a remastered version of the first game, where the second half of it um, essentially told a sequel to the first game, and actually expanded upon what the story ended up having to offer. So it's kind of like a half and half, but I'm still going to call it a mainline game. Uh, the fourth one, Genealogy of the Holy War, ended up coming out in 96, uh, followed three years later by Thracia 776, um, out in 1999, officially becoming the f uh, fifth game of the franchise. And the one where it was on the precipice of getting an international release, it was a little bit of a shaky period because around 2000, the year after Thracia came out, Intelligent Systems was basically trying to get a... Fire Emblem game put out on the N64. And so they were just going to codename it Fire Emblem 64 and hopefully get it out um, at some point in the new millennia, but that ended up uh, crashing and burning and they decided to hold on a couple of that ideas which ended up being translated into a handhold console version on the Game Boy called Fire Emblem The Binding Blade, which ended up coming out in 2002. And finally in 2003, just a year after that, we ended up getting the first 
mainline Fire Emblem game to be released worldwide. Um, so it was able to go through into Europe and North America as well, titled as just Fire Emblem. And this was the first game I ever played in 2003 inside of the franchise. And if there is anything that I can give my just basic arithmetic skills to, it would definitely be uh, lining up with uh, with just uh, Fire Emblem Blazing Blade. Because that was the one where it's like, hey, guess what? You need to do multiplication and you need to do addition and you need to figure out how many grid pieces you'll be able to move here and how many grid pieces can move here. And like every, thankfully it, it was, it seemed like a basic arithmetic was basically going down the line where if it's just like you needed to figure out how much your unit could survive with if they got hit by each one. It also taught you how to essentially go through and lean into this franchise with a lot of uh, risk reward management, considering that the entirety of this uh, franchise is real. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is based on luck and RN, because Fire Emblem as a whole, it is a turn-based grid RPG that goes through in a fantasy world where there are swords and medieval weapons and magic and dragons and mythical creatures that essentially go through and it's sometimes it's a different continent entirely and sometimes some games are sequels to other games that go right after the fact. Sometimes there are spiritual successors where they take place on the same continent but hundreds of years later. A lot of the games essentially like keep itself in the same vein and in the seeps uh, in the same cycle to call back to old legendary weapons or key weapons that essentially go through and are like mainstays inside of the franchise. All of those are very consistent whenever that goes around, but there are still different continents uh, depending on what set of games that you're playing. And so I don't know what really drew me into it. Maybe it was just the arithmetic and the math-based uh, things that I had to consistently go through because it was... It was the first time I remember playing an RPG, basically. I, I guess you could call it a JRPG in a sense, but a lot of the grid mechanics would only be like put out in terms of uh, games like Advance Wars or Final Fantasy Tactics Ogre. So kind of along those lines of grid-based RPG progressional uh, sorts of games. Blazing Blade was a technically a prequel. It came out a year after FE6, but it was a prequel to FE6 in the sense that it starred the uh, parents and fathers of some of the main characters inside of the other games. And so it was weird because when I played Blazing Blade, it was the only Fire Emblem title that I had essentially gone through, but, but right next to it, uh, I was also playing Super Smash Brothers Melee and seeing Marth, who I had no idea who, uh, which game he was from, even though I knew he was a Fire Emblem character, and Roy, who was also a Fire Emblem character, it's like, oh, he looks familiar, but and he's got the red hair, and he's got the short stature, but he doesn't look like Elliewood. And, of course, his name's not Elliewood, who is the uh, name of the uh, main character in uh, the seventh game, Blazing Blade, which is basically the prequel to Roy and his Roy's father. So it was really interesting to kind of see how that goes through. If I had to say which game was better, considering that it's very, both the games are incredibly similar since they were made within a year of each other and one is technically a prequel to the other, I still do think that they were able to iron out a lot of the difficulty tweaks as well as the itemization and the characters in uh, FE7 over FE6 but it ended up uh, lining up and doing pretty well. Not long after that, in 2004, you ended up getting Sacred Stones on the Game Boy Advance as well. Uh, Sacred Stones takes place on an entirely different continent, different characters, different setup. Uh, Path of Radiance would be the first mainline uh, Fire Emblem game on the GameCube, which would come out in 2005, just a year later. And 
if there is, like, this is definitely the uh, series of games inside the franchise that I want to go back and I want to re-experience because it's, Jesus, it's been like 15 and 17 years respectively that I haven't played either of these games. And like judging by all of the videos I've seen and like recalling everybody else's playthroughs and having the opportunity to go through and see those, I would really love to go back and have the opportunity to play through this again. So uh, the GameCube ended up getting Path of Radiance in 2005, and then in 2007 on the Wii, you had the sequel to Path of Radiance called Radiant Dawn, which really made things needlessly interesting inside of the Fire Emblem universe. So there was a really awkward translation error that happened inside of Radiant Dawn when it got the international release. So because of a translation error leading into the selecting your own difficulty, basically the Japanese hard mode became the normal mode for the international release. And then the maddening modes or the insane modes that happened up on Japanese were the hard modes. So not only was it a sequel game that you had to like play through the extensively long Path of Radiance uh, game first, and then you would also have to go through and have like enough experience and wherewithal to enjoy and to at least get through because you're also like playing on a difficulty a lot higher than for the rest of it. So for people like just going through and trying to play it for the story, you definitely didn't have that opportunity to go through. And so it was incredibly difficult and Radiant Dawn ended up becoming like one of the just smallest uh, sellers inside of the franchise as a whole. And that definitely led it on a very shaky next couple of years after everybody was going through. And so in 2008, a year after Radiant Dawn, you basically ended up getting Shadow Dragon, which was a remaster on the Nintendo DS of the first game. And once again, that also didn't sell too well um, in terms of the worldwide market. Uh, so bad, in fact, that they ended up doing a remaster of the third game, New Mystery of the Emblem, and they put that on the 3DS. Uh, they just didn't make it internationally available. They just made it a Japanese exclusive. And so they were just, they had absolutely no expectation or hope that this would at least be able to, like, give them a reason to license, distribute, and translate this internationally, and so they decided to forego, like, using all those resources together and brought it back to being a Japanese exclusive. So, basically, it had been five years since a mainline Fire Emblem game had uh, just essentially been released at all. And so, Intelligent Systems was basically put under the pressure of basically getting an ultimatum, whereas if this next mainline Fire Emblem game does not sell well or does not live up uh, to any of the presidents or expectations that we're leading up, we are unfortunately going to probably have to just cancel and axe the whole Fire Emblem franchise as a whole. There would have been no other mainline games, this would have been the final one, and it would have just been a sad and unfortunate end to a franchise that had been playing for a number of years to essentially just go out with a whimper. I'm trying to figure out the essential opposite hyperbole of what a whimper would be, considering that Awakening, Fire Emblem Awakening came out and just, it's like, no, we're going to be casually becoming the best uh, selling game in the franchise. Just no questions asked. And just like that, uh, Fire Emblem ended up just taking it, taking hold of its new footing. A lot of people were definitely curious about the anime and gentrified versions of the gameplay, considering that not only were they giving people an easier mode, and permadeath was definitely something that was a high bar for entry for a lot of people getting into the game, but then on top of everything else, it's like, no, we'll give people an easier way to get them into the franchise. And, like, 
leave the door open for new people to experience this uh, uh, game series as a whole. And it ended up working because it was out on 3DS, and so many people ended up discovering this series for the first time and having the opportunity to expand upon this franchise and give the opportunity to at least go through and explore it at their own leisure. Even though they did take away permadeath, even though they did take away a lot of pieces and they were like, oh, so you're an Avatar character, it's no longer a main lord, you are just a... you are the main character of your story. And guess what? You also get a pair-up system as well as an S-rank support to marry the character of your choice in-game. So a lot of people were just really, I don't know, a lot of people were split, a lot of diehard Fire Emblem fans at the time were just like, this isn't what I was, this isn't what I got into the series for, this isn't hard, this isn't, like, this isn't a decent story, this isn't something that essentially is going through, it's like gentrified and playing to the lowest common denominator and trying to become like more of a popular franchise through just coddling and bringing people in rather than giving them a challenge. And Sure, I do agree with that. I also agree with the fact that I'm glad that it was, it did itself, it's, uh, I'm just glad that it did itself a favor in order to make itself a lot more palatable and open to new people getting in the franchise because there would have been no other way that Awakening would have had the success that it did rather than going through. And so on top of that, having a couple of rounds of successful DLC, Fire Emblem was a back in the race and essentially becoming a franchise that Nintendo can go through and come back to invest in. And so afterwards, they ended up bringing out Fire Emblem Fates. And so in this case, we ended up getting Birthright, Conquest, and then its subsequent sequel, Revelation. And this was, if there was one part of the franchise that I was just skeptical and completely indifferent about in terms of just not even caring or like... Honestly, like, taking a little, like, not necessarily as angry as some people were about Awakening, but just being like, what essentially is this as a whole? Like, why, like, why is this here? They're, they're doubling down on, you know, the waifu aspect and the husbando aspect, and they're just, like, really, like, reusing a lot of uh, story beats that they had from the previous ones. It definitely seemed like they were just really trying to make it, like, the most consumer-friendly product imaginable, and... Because of those, you know, highest tell, even though it's three different titles, it's still, like, on a technicality, it is now, like, the highest, uh, like, selling piece that ended up going through inside of the franchise, back to back. But it's, like, this was the one game where I just went through and I just could not, like, go through. I, I did Birthright. The fact that what they ended up doing where it's like, hey, cool, you buy one of these two, they basically pokemon it, where it's like you can either buy the Birthright version or the Conquest version, but you have to buy the set, the second, like, route, because you basically have two different routes of two different families inside the game, and it's like, so yeah, you buy this one, you're allowed to buy a discounted version of the second route, and then after that, you get to buy another piece of DLC for the Revelation route, the overall complete ending of the story. And for me, I was like, no, fuck you, I'm not gonna do that. And so, to this day, like, basically, Fates is the only mainline Fire Emblem title that I just started and could not finish, because I just, that kind of way that they decided to treat the entire franchise as a whole was the one thing that ended up leaving a bad taste in my mouth. Um, and then after all of that, they ended up getting their first, um, a year, and then, sorry about that. And so a year, uh, and so two years later, 
like the overall commodification of Fire Emblem basically came full circle as they ended up getting Fire Emblem Heroes, which is a gotcha-based mobile version of the entire Fire Emblem franchise. And that is also one that I still haven't been able to go through and get into, because it was just, there was absolutely no way that I'd be able to go through and spend money on any mobile game or any gacha-like setup. I did have a phase of that, like, back in 2010, where I did, uh, like, play mobile games and went online, but on the gacha system and basically the whole mobile market as a whole that ended up building itself inside the 2010s, it was one of the things that I didn't end up getting into, so... It was definitely something that, at least to this day, I haven't been able to go through, but same deal. It gets people into it, and it feeds the franchise like more than enough money for them to at least go through and fund the rest of their projects. So inside of 2017, you had the Gotcha Game Heroes, you had the first Dynasty Warrior spinoff uh, like leading into that, and then we also ended up getting another uh, remaster, which is Fire Emblem Echoes Shadows of Valencia, which is a remaster like a complete overhaul, modernization, and remaster of the second Fire Emblem game. So even though I haven't played the original second one, having the opportunity to go through and play this, I thought the classic uh, setups that they ended up bringing into this was honestly like refreshing and a really cool change of pace to kind of like bring into that, where there was no weapon triangle, magic worked in a different way in the sense that it, went, it ended up going on health, and you could essentially like give items to your units that didn't necessarily break, but also they were able to give you opportunities to not only heal, but give you buffs. So overall, I really did enjoy uh, Echoes. I definitely enjoyed it more than I did Fates, and probably more than I did Awakening. Well, mm, Awakening's very... Hmm, that is a good question. Like, did I like Awakening more than I did Echoes? I definitely liked it more than Shadow Dragon. Shadow Dragon was really weird, but I think I'll do like a, a tier list at some point, leading on to uh, the rest of it afterwards. And so now we were leading into 2019, and we had been getting bits and pieces of information on the next mainline Fire Emblem title, which was going to be coming to the Nintendo Switch, which was uh, tentatively named Three Houses. If you disregard the fact that if we're like going through and naming like the most successful Fire Emblem title inside the franchise, I would still give this title to Fire Emblem Three Houses, considering that, sure, Fates as a whole, with all three games in tow, has sold more than three million copies, and to this day, or at least, sorry, as up till uh, March 31st, 2020, th uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses has sold 2.87 million. So, technically, Fates has the numbers, but because it's three separate games, I'm definitely give the title to Three Houses as a whole, because, I mean... I really did enjoy this one. It definitely was an interesting one since it was the first route that I played was tedious. And getting used to the battalion system as well as, like, basically the overworld. I, in hindsight, like, talking to somebody at work about this where they were able to get through one of the routes but were very put off on the overworld section where it's like, hey do all these menial JRPG tasks in order to go through motivation, to get your professor level, to like go through and have the opportunity to increase the weapon rank and the skills of your students. The first playthrough was the most difficult and took the longest by far, considering that you didn't know what you were capable of, you didn't know who you'd be able to recruit, you didn't know like being able to go through and having the opportunity to like take enemy students off the field by put taking them onto your team also affected like the variable difficulty like leading into the game it was very interesting to kind of like see how that went through but 
thankfully, because of New Game Plus giving you the opportunities to, like, not have to worry about a lot of the menial tasks that came through, like, leading into your second and third playthroughs, but... I still did enjoy the story, even though there were like a handful of plot holes. I enjoyed, like most of the best Fire Emblem games, I definitely think that the characters are the ones that carry the majority of the story, and they do a fantastic job with the cast that they're given, especially with the extensive lists between four, technically like three houses, but technically four because of the church. All things considered, it was a really fun game and a really positive experience overall to go through. And so at the end of that, that's basically, like, the most recent mainline game, because, I mean, Tokyo Mirage Sessions ended up getting another game in 2020, and then another Dynasty Warriors uh, Fire Emblem Three Hopes ended up coming out again. So, those are the ones that I still haven't played, considering that they are majorly spin-offs, and I don't necessarily, like, care for much of the Dynasty Warriors formula, but regardless of that fact, it was definitely interesting. It's That's basically the timeline of all of the franchise's games as a whole, and it's definitely one where... It's really tough to go through and line up, like, why I why I like some more than the other. Some of them are nostalgia, some of them are reasons that essentially go through and, like, don't give me much of a reason. Especially with the commodification, especially of, like, some of the, of the more recent Fire Emblem games, which I'm thankfully, Three Houses ended up just deciding to ditch for most of it entirely. Because, yeah, if Fates is definitely the result of, like, some of the worst practices inside of the uh, gaming industry as a whole, especially for the fact that not only was there just localization, um, it was just, like, localization, not even errors, just specific translations where it's just like, hey, we're going to be doing gay conversion therapy on one of these characters, and we're also going to include an overworld that allows you to pet the characters in the game this was like okay there's waifuism and then there's whatever the fuck you decided to turn it into <laughs> and then there's whatever the fuck that they decided to turn this into because it's like taking some of the worst aspects of jrpgs and just like throwing away the majority of aspects that made the series great as a whole which i'm thankful three houses was able to escape for the majority of that point but yeah no it's easily like one of my least favorite ones to kind of like go through and just have the opportunity to just not there are if anything it's very difficult because it's like yeah like then why don't you just emulate and go back and play conquest and uh birthright or not birthright uh conquest and revelations because like f watching videos online and like seeing the essays on how a lot of characters like came through inside of fire emblem fates I mean, in terms of the ones that I didn't play in Conquest, which were Xander and Nyx uh, specifically, there are still, like, every single Fire Emblem game under the sun, there are still great characters to find in the midst of this. It's just that the majority of it is just bogged down by subpar character writing as well as subpar stories, which I will admit, I don't come to Fire Emblem for the story. It's definitely the gameplay. It's definitely something that's a tradition of mine to keep around and have the opportunity to come back to and play because it's familiar, like a lot of people do think. Of some of their favorite franchises but yeah no it's i don't know like if, if you're telling me it's like hey well if you want to like what what is your favorite to least favorite where it's like fates is the only one where i started and couldn't finish so there's definitely that if i had to go through considering that it was the one i most recently finished and was definitely the genesis for like getting giving me the opportunity to talk about this whole franchise is that I was finally able to emulate and play for the first time FE6, The Binding Blade, which is the one that did have Roy and the rest of his family and is a sequel to the story that I ended up playing 17 years ago. 
And the reason why I would put it near the bottom is that it was definitely like a lot of growing pains and a lot like ridiculous hard mode uh, difficulty ones where if it's just you, you might as well call it a lunatic mode instead of a hard mode. I ended up like playing a remastered version and a ROM hack that gave like more like gave more favorable bases and no growths, but like didn't change the growths at all. Like it made it slightly easier. And by slightly easier, I mean like not fucking impossible because like going through and like looking at the first couple of chapters inside of the game, like on playthroughs was like, wow, FE6 was just fucking ridiculously hard in the first six chapters for no reason whatsoever. On top of the fact that Roy is just easily one of the like worst Lords unit wise inside of the entire franchise. So there was also that, I mean, the second one, which would definitely go through, I don't know, actually, before I do that, I, I guess I'll go through and like, on my closing thoughts on uh, Binding Blade FE6, is that it was very simple, it was like the most bare bones Fire Emblem experience that I could probably think of, it was, it definitely walked so FE7 could run, considering that it was able, FE7, uh, later on in this list, will definitely go through and give, like, more, uh, like, in-depth characters, like, a much greater stake and just progress as well as you know information on how the world runs as a whole and who is essentially you're fighting and why it even all matters in the first place because like roy's progression in the game is very static uh what is it who was it a uh, Bisqu bisquick basically goes through and like this game like spits out recruits like gumball machine like definitely like there are way too many fucking characters for you to like go through and care about I will give it the fact that it gives you a playable brigand. That was fucking awesome. Gonzalez was like easily one of my favorite units in the game. Um, but then, yeah, no, it like just the low, low bases that a lot of these units that you get inside of hard mode, like make the game needlessly more difficult than it normally is, especially with the fact on how ridiculously unforgiving the uh, hit rate system in this game is. Like even on the final chapter that I ended up going through, I ended up getting crit three times uh, by 2% crit uh, hit rates. No, there were two 2% and there was one 1%. And it's like, there goes the fucking run. I'm really fucking glad that there's a rewind mechanic in this emulator because this would have been so ridiculously long and tedious for me to actually go through and enjoy. And so, I don't know. You, you can call me out for, for that what you will, but good God, if it is so needlessly difficult by comparison to everything. Consider, like, especially with all of the sleep staves and the berserk staves that you have to go through and deal with. Like, easily my least favorite parts about Fire Emblem. Like, holy shit, this was a trial to get through. Kind of the same deal with uh, Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon, which is, which for me, I played the remake that came out on the Nintendo DS. It's the same deal. Marth is not a good lord character, and the only reason he's relevant at all is because there are so many fucking uh, cavalry units in this game, but the weapon triangle doesn't even matter, and the only reason Marth is even remotely relevant is because he has access to the rapier, which deals bonus damage uh, to the rest of it. So, like, Carmilla? No. Carla, like, easily is one of the better units in the game because she has the spear version of the rapier, which also gives her bonus damage against armored units as well as cav. And it, it was... Same deal, it was a very tedious one and holy shit the final chapter inside of this like it's such a ridiculously like settled slog you could easily soft lock yourself if you didn't like invest on specific characters like getting towards the end game and so it was like the map design was like very flat understandably they could only change so much considering that it was basically coming off of the first game 
but wow, good God, there were just way too many cab units and not enough ways to deal with it because it's like, hey, we'll give you mercenaries and Myrmidons who are absolutely dog shit against um, cab units, but you're not going to get a lot of axe users, so it's like, good luck with that. So I, I was glad to actually finally have the opportunity to go through and play it, but man, was it weird. Afterwards, I would definitely like put all like these four games in a very difficult like way to tier them. I would say at the very like bottom of the of like that tier, it would definitely be Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, which is the sequel to Path of Radiance. It was unnecessarily long, like in terms of the story that it was trying to tell, as well as the diversity, like the new characters and the new band that you are taking control of are definitely not as up to snuff and not as good as the original party that you had in Path of Radiance. And you're just waiting until you get to have the opportunity to go through and play as the Path of Radiance characters. But it was still a fine game. I definitely appreciate the fact that after, you know, several years, like after seven years, you got a second promotion on your units to have like three... Of course you had three tiers in Sacred Stones and Awakening. Like you still had like those tiered units where you had like uh, Forerunners and Journeymen and soul, uh, uh, Recruits. So technically they were like rookie characters that you could go through and train up, but like seeing an end game just powerhouse of powerhouses of units when you had halberdiers and like greater generals and just having the opportunity to go through and see how far you could push the envelope with these characters, it was like a really fun time like getting towards the end game. Even though it was, hey, we're gonna give you 120 playable characters or so, and you're only gonna be allowed to take like 15 into the end game, where it's like why? <laughs> Even though that is a problem with a lot of Fire Emblem games as a whole. Um, I would still put Fire Emblem Awakening on the same level as that, though. Like, being able to completely revitalize the franchise and still having a relatively, like, decent set of characters. And even though the story doesn't necessarily go through and, like, live up to a lot of the better ones, I still thought that the flack that it got was definitely, like, not justified at all. Especially with where it's like, oh, man, they, in, they introduced the pair-up system where it's like, hey, if I put two units together, not only are there supports greater, but you have a chance to not only double attack, you also have a chance to, like, block damage entirely, as well as, like, sharing experience. So it's like, wow, this is a ridiculously overpowered skill and, like, mechanic for you to use in the game, where it's like, yeah, but that got introduced in FE4. So go back to FE4 and, like, blame them for, like, going through and, like, adding that onto that, because that was definitely one of the major parts, especially, which which definitely, like, curbed the difficulty for not only Awakening, but Fates. So, there, so that was definitely it. I did find... After ages and ages of searching, uh, Fire Emblem Sacred Stones, and it unfortunately had a battery issue where the coin battery inside the cartridge had died, and I had to literally figure out how to like bring this thing back to life where it's like, okay, so you need to find a very special tri-headed screwdriver in order to get the cartridge open in the first place, and then you're going to have to solder off the old coin battery and then put and then plug in a new one for you to uh, play through it. And so I'm glad that I was able to go through and have the opportunity to fix that. And I was able to go through and replay Fire Emblem Sacred Stones for the first time in like over 10 years. And it still holds up. I really do enjoy the characters. I really enjoyed the story. And I really enjoyed basically the uh, trifecta of the relationships between the two main lords as well as their old friend who is one of the major antagonists of the game. So it's definitely above average for the rest of that and i would definitely like put it at the top of the tier where it would just be a little further above fire emblem echoes shadows of valencia i definitely think that this was a great addition 
and a good idea to go through and like completely remake and remaster it, not the like simplified version that they ended up doing for uh, Shadow Dragon and Mystery of the Emblem. Uh, like basically giving it a whole new coat of paint and giving every character and every like part of the game the same polish that they did with Awakening. I'm kind of glad that they were able to go through and like give it an entirely new look and feel while keeping the majority of the story well down to earth and still on the same vein. I definitely really enjoyed uh, the split map. Uh, and the overhead that they were able to go through and incorporate definitely like gave it a new fresh spin through the majority of the mechanics that had all that I'd already been getting used to for the rest of the game. And so I really did enjoy everything revolving around Echoes to the rest of it. So now if I had to say the top three Fire Emblem games in the franchise, thir the third one, which I still would have to... Number two, I'm going to have to replay again because this is all... A lot of that's on nostalgia and a lot of that is on like the replayability and just the overall you know, enjoyment that I ended up getting from it. But at least for number three would be Three Houses. Like, it is an incredibly solid game. It's got a tedious first route, for sure. Every other route that you play afterwards not only gives more context and gives you more ideas about the story, but it also, like, definitely, like, tones down the grinding once your professional level get, starts going up in between uh, playthroughs. So I, it's definitely like a really slow and tedious start, but actually, but having the opportunity to go through and play all four routes, it was definitely a great opportunity to go through and see like what they were able to do and turn a Fire Emblem game into inside of the modern day. So it is that like if also anybody's looking for a Fire Emblem game to get into, considering that it is incredibly difficult to come down. That's one of the major problems about a lot of Fire Emblem titles nowadays is that it is incredibly difficult to come across any kind of physical copy for any of these games or any of the consoles to play them like in the first place. And so on top of everything else, the they ended up finally putting out an official localization of the first Fire Emblem game from that came from the Famicom out on the Nintendo eStore. But there is no other digital download for any other version of the game, like for any other part of the franchise. You can only do it physical with a with a console, or you literally just have to play the first game on the Switch, and that's the only one. So, if anything, I am hoping that basically Nintendo and Intelligent Systems can go through and have the opportunity to bring a lot of the old titles onto the eShop and bring them on as ports, because that's definitely something that would not only give more people the opportunity and more chances to get in the franchise, but you know what, honestly, if you put out the entire franchise out on the Nintendo eShop, like, the next day, I would easily fucking go and say, shut up and take my money. I will buy them all. Um, that's probably the only franchise I can, like, say with confidence that I'd be able to, I would be able to do that. So, a fantastic entryway for a lot of people to get into the series and definitely go through. If there was going to be another game that I would choose to emulate next, it would definitely be Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, which would definitely go for number two. It's not as long as uh, Radiant Dawn. It gives you a great introduction and all of the stories that basically flew over my head when I was a kid, when I played it for the first time on the GameCube, after watching a lot of essays going through online, it was so much deeper and more in-depth than any other, than I could have, like, even imagined, like, through the rest of it. The characters are nuanced, there's always a deeper meaning behind all of the interactions and the relationships between all the characters. I didn't decide to bring Mist into it, considering that I didn't think healers were, like, a necessity because Volinaries existed. I was a moron when I was a child, so healers are the fucking bomb. But going through and playing all of... And I, 
there's nothing but positive memories I have from Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. It is just such a well-rounded, just well-put-together game, and there's very few things that I could definitely say that would actually, like, bring this down, but it's definitely on a personal preference, but still, it is, like, easily, even though it hasn't been years since I touched it, like, at the top of the game compared to everything else. And so the final one that I'm definitely going to go through, which I could definitely chalk up to nostalgia if it weren't for the fact that I ended up playing through it twice, like, very recently over the past two years, is Fire Emblem 7 Blazing Blade, which was, in this case, the first international release of Fire Emblem 7, or just Fire Emblem. It is the same deal where a lot of the relationships and the support conversations went over my head as a kid, and having to go through back and play Ellawood and Hector's routes respectively for the first time in ages with a new perspective and a newfound knowledge on the game, it was a fantastic series, and something that was much more appreciative the second go around because just having the nuance and the perspective of somebody who's coming back after like going through nearly the entire franchise over like more than a decade and coming back to where it all started and what got a lot of people in the west interested in this franchise in the first place the weapon triangle is basically the perfect amalgamation inside of any of the franchises that are lined up here the weapon triangle for not only regular weapons but for magic as well you've got a lot of characters a lot of stories a lot of different relationships that are being able to go through one of the better relationships inside of the franchise as a whole in between Ellawood and Ninian even though it was very short-lived how Ellawood is able to go through and since there are a lot of main characters inside of the Fire Emblem franchises that are very one-note and static, where it's just, I'm a good, good boy that wants to fight this war and to win this war for my people as quickly as possible so I can stop the bloodshed. And that's basically, like, the major, you know, selling point of every single character in every Fire Emblem game ever. It's very, very one-note, very, like, set up, but then you... Look into Ellawood and Hector's, not only their relationship as friends, but also how essentially they are reacting to the world around them, basically going and th being thrown into utter chaos and having the opportunity to go through and protect one another and protect those around them, regardless of what they believe, as well as the differences in how they think and how they feel and how they believe they need to protect the things that they hold dear. Also, I'm definitely going to give, like, props up to Linus, because before the entire, like, waifu, like, debate ended up going through, like, Lynn was, like, easily my first, like, female video game crush, like, as a whole. Like, she's, like, she's a badass Myrmidon lord, she, or blade lord in this case, as the game goes on. Like, she is just fantastic in every other, like, way, not only in, not only in terms of a unit, but also in terms of, like, going through and her story and how she's able to adapt and still deal with the world around her as everything is changing. Okay, she probably wasn't the better of the three lords. Hector, I would say, is the best lord unit, but Lynn, considering that she's incredibly frail, like, health-wise and defense-wise, like, a stiff breeze would be able to just kill her, unfortunately, but still, all of the mechanics and all of the things that were ironed out from FE6 to FE7, even though FE7 is a prequel, it was able to take all of the shortcomings and all of the unnecessary pieces that were just made FE6 like an unenjoyable experience. They ironed it out and they made sure it never came into contact with this game and to give everybody who was experiencing this franchise for the first time um, a way to appeal to its strengths and to hide its weaknesses, and to not only go through and craft a well-told and creative fantasy story inside of the RPG genre as a whole, but 
easily solidify it as one of the best sprite-based, just grid, turn-based JRPG, and to make it like one of the best, I mean, quote, turn-based JRPGs, like, lined up that I've ever played. So I would definitely give this franchise um, a go-through. It's very difficult to find um, a physical copy nowadays where if it's like the easiest one to get into nowadays would be Three Houses. If you wanted to go through and emulate, then I would definitely like go through and say play Sacred Stones, play Echoes, play uh, the original Fire Emblem, or, or in this case Epi 7, or Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. I would say all those are like really good games to get into and to get your foot in the door. And I don't know, yeah, no, I just definitely appreciate uh, going through and having the opportunity to talk about my favorite franchise like this. Especially, like, having the opportunity to go through and have that rekindled bit, uh, through the ways of emulation since it was the first time I was able to do this for any other game in general. So, maybe I'll do it again in the future and have the opportunity to experience Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, but I really hope before I decide to make that choice that either the new mainline Fire Emblem game is going to be making its debut, or Nintendo will finally wise up and say, hey... We're going to be making digital copies of these games to actually go through and have give other people the opportunity to play them just as I have. All right, cheers. Have a good one.